Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and Jeff and I are here with Don Parker again. Don was gracious enough to come and do another podcast with us, so we really appreciate that. Jeff's kind of being disrespectful, Tom, to the podcast. What am I, the engineer, sound engineer? <laughs> J- Producer. J- well, so as the music started, Jeff asked me if I had his mic on. and I mean, you leave the mic off one time for one guy, and then it becomes a thing. It could happen. Didn't, I didn't mean to be disrespectful. I'm sorry. <laughs> so was was that about the Paralisi moment yeah, when you left? Well, yeah, so well, how did that up. circle around? How did Jeff find that out? I think I told him or something. Well, then that's on you. Well, we were just making conversation one day. I don't know how it came up. <laughs> we, we did double up on an episode with Brian back in the summer because I didn't record anything Brian said. Inadvertently <laughs> left the microphone off, so 18 minutes of pretty good content, especially when yeah. he was talking about music and musical interests and songs that he would have used when he was coming out of the bullpen, which would have been some really good content. Yeah, no, we lost it. So, yeah. that was, so that one turned out to have to be the definition of a long, awkward silence when yes. he was talking. Yep, pretty much. Pretty much. That, that would describe it, Jim. I think he salvaged the first 47 seconds or something. I did, yeah. Yeah, that was about it. That was not my finest moment as a podcaster. All right, Tom, I'm giving you another chance to ask the podcast question. So does that mean I didn't do a good job when I asked Paralisi the question? Okay, I'm I just, didn't say that. I just said I'm just giving you another chance. Double check it. So you'd like me to ask Dr. Gore. It's up to you. A podcast question. I'm passing the ball to you. Favorite hair metal band from the 80s, Jeff Gore. From the 80s? Yes. I never really liked hair metal in the 80s. Okay. Then we'll go back. How about 70s? I was more... uh, Favorite metal band of the 70s. Well, I don't know about the 70s. I, I was still pretty young. Well... Okay, in the seventies it was Kiss, and then probably transferred. Transferred is that the right word? Yeah, to Ozzy. Okay, and Hank Jr. Fascinating. Who was it that was talking about? Oh, it was um, Mahaffey. Yeah, talking about being on an airplane when he had an old iPod and he sat it there, and the guy next to him said, "Well, I wouldn't have thought that those Metallica <laughs> and Hank Jr. would have gone together, but." You make it work. Seems to be a common theme in the southern United States with these guys. Don, so you were with us on a previous episode. We talked about the Cotton Council and the things that it does, but I think you probably sold yourself short in describing a lot of things that you personally do with the Cotton Council and for the cotton industry and really agriculture in general because it reaches way beyond the cotton industry. I think your specific role uh, with the Cotton Council and, and in the industry. First of all, describe in a little bit more detail your specific role, and, yeah. and then we'll get into some of the issues that you're currently dealing with. My role is Vice President of Technical Services and still doing my management of pest management issues for the cotton industry. It engages me and things from the boll weevil eradication program is one of the big things I still try to keep tabs on and work on, but registration of pesticides is, is another big component of what uh, I work on. Trying to work with the companies, understand what products uh, are coming up for registration review, what challenges there may be out there. 
I have a lot of engagement with the EPA, and I'm probably one of the very few nerds in the country that will read the 400, 500-page documents EPA puts out on risk assessments around pesticide products and try to understand where I can go in and talk to them and explain some perceptions that they had that were wrong to improve our risk assessments and correct some things. So it's a it's a pretty broad array of things. You know, it also gets into some trade issues at times of, or that's pest-related or pesticide-related and covers a pretty big swath of things. You know, I think just listening to Don talk, as an entomologist, we have a big national group and periodically Don sends an email out to our whole group and half of them roll their eyes go, oh, no, here's another email from Don. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that, that what Don does with the National Cotton Council from that standpoint is extremely important because it keeps us engaged and keeps us informed on issues related to pesticides and, and things that we're going to have to deal with from a research standpoint, whether it be defending a product or finding figuring out alternatives to certain products and what we would do if product x was gone how would that impact products y and z um so you know we're fortunate to have somebody like don at the cotton council that keeps us up to date on that stuff jeff the, the nice thing is i've never been bashful to acknowledge that i am the paranoid pessimist no, you haven't. And uh, <laughs> I, I told him, I said, you know, anybody that tried to do my job for a while would understand why. So I get some of these calls at times from from EPA or I'm reading a risk assessment and I see something that's wrong in there. And whenever I see this, I need some information. And if it's a call from EPA, I need the information pretty quick. I'm, I'm so grateful for all of the, the extensions people across the country that I can blast an email out to a whole group of entomologists or a whole group of weed scientists or a whole group of plant pathologists and I'll get most of them responding back by the end of the day. You know that says a lot for the whole ag community that we all bond together and work together as a team effort and uh, so that's really just really incredible to me and I'm always very grateful for that but it's, it's never, you know, I acknowledge that it's probably never a good thing if you get an email from me because that means we're we're having a little bit of a problem here. Yeah, and I, you know, they're not all pesticide-related. It's when there's an invasive species in the country, we'll get an email from Don. A couple of recent ones were chili thrips several years ago, and yeah. now last couple of years is cotton seed bug. Yeah. So it's important. Don, What's the, one of the big issues that you're working on right now related to pesticide registration? Probably the biggest issue that I think faces all of agriculture right now, and it could be more devastating than anybody wants to acknowledge, is a clause in the Endangered Species Act that mandates a consultation process. So it, it says that any federal agency making a decision that may impact an endangered or threatened species must complete a consultation process with Fish and Wildlife Services and Marine and Fisheries Services. When that was first passed, 
I think many of the congressmen were thinking, you know, in terms of building a road and, or you've got an area that you're going through and you're, you're going through a consultation process on how to protect the species in that construction avenue or whatever. But they didn't really anyone think about that EPA's federal decision is the registration of a pesticide product. And so that law makes it where that EPA is supposed to make a determination if there is, if they may affect an endangered species for the whole nation, for all of them that's across the nation, for any use of that product, for all uses of the product, you know. So it's a massive challenge that EPA has wrestled with for years and, and how to proceed in a process to do that and, and to work it out with Fish and Wildlife Services has been a battle ever since the ESA was put in place. And, and when, when was that, Don? Uh, you would catch me on the, the year of that. I can't remember. Well, the just year. approximately. Yeah. It doesn't have um, to be specific. Probably in the 70s. And I think that was my point. This is not a new Mm-mm. thing no. that we're, I mean, it's gotten some attention in recent years, but it's not a new fight that's no, being fought. It's not. And what has happened now, though, is um, groups that they call non-government organizations, NGOs, you know, Pesticide Action Network or, or some different groups like that that really don't favor pesticide use anyway. They have found this as an avenue to sue EPA because EPA has not complied with the law. And so they have sued EPA and asked for the, re- the uh, removal of some of these registrations. The court has set some deadlines that EPA has had to meet on some of them, and EPA has struggled trying to get there. But whenever they don't even have a process, an agreement with Fish and Wildlife Services and National Marine and Fishery Services of how to move through this consultation process, then it's, it's really put a lot of legal risk out there and uncertainty on where the courts are going to go with some of these, these uh, cases. Can you give us, give us an example of one that's been successful through this process and maybe one that hasn't? Or well, have enough been completed that we can do that? Yeah, well, they're steadily working on trying to get, get some completed. They're a little bit over 5% done right now. You think about how many products are out there that they haven't even got started good yet. And they're still, even though they're, they've been working on this, you know, this has been an, an issue since I started with the council uh, 15 years ago. And, and what's really made it really highlighted now is, is the lawsuits have piled up so much on EPA for not having met these consultations. You know, we had one product that, that yeah, therefore, period, the judge vacated the registration. That is something that typically doesn't happen, but they, can, they started putting that in their petition where they file against EPA is seeking the vacature of the registration until EPA completes the consultation process. If that's the case, then those products won't be registered for years because uh, right now 
EPA has said that based on the number of cases they've got, trying to catch up on all of the court mandates they have right now, they basically are solid booked for the next six years. And that's just for new registration. That doesn't even include anything that will be re-registered. Well, those well, those because are has just, that already been done, or will that come back around for them to satisfy that specific? So those that they they're talking about are products that's already registered, but they didn't complete that process, and they were sued in court, and the court gave them a deadline of you've got to you've got to do these products by this date, these products by this date. And so they're going to be working through that list. That does not include any new products that may come on. That does not include other registration review products that come up that, that have not gone through the consultation process. So that, that includes active ingredients that probably been around some of them since the 60s, right? Oh, yeah, or before. The consultation process just ultimately hasn't been done before. EPA got away with it in the past because that they do a very thorough environmental risk assessment. But whenever you get to the threatened and endangered species, it's, it's, a, it's a whole different challenge. And that authority lies within Fish and Wildlife and National Marine and Fisheries Services. And I've been in a meeting before where that they said, well, EPA used a, a surrogate species and some tests. We don't believe there's a surrogate species for endangered species and EPA used these these different models and we don't believe that you can model uh, stuff for endangered species and EPA did this test but they didn't include uh, the soil type and and what contaminants may be in the soil and what other mixtures may and so it's just a whole array of stuff that they would throw in there and then they would point out that in the statutory language for the Endangered Species Act, they are required to an, a biological opinion where the EPA is, is bound to data sets. They are, in, they are instructed to use the best available science, but understanding that there may not be much science on an endangered species, the, the language gave them latitude into a biological opinion. And that's been the big hang-up for years. And whose opinion is that? Is that EPA's opinion or the service's opinion? That is the services. The, the, all that authority uh, is granted to the services. And understand, whenever we talk about endangered species, a lot of times people talk about, uh, think about the bald eagle or uh, a whale these big iconic creatures. And, and that gets a lot of support and people uh, really embracing the, the Endangered Species Act. They don't realize often that, that that act basically says to save the species. It didn't place a limit on what you can do to save it. You know, it so it just says that you've got to save the species. And that species can be, for instance, if you looked at what's really listed, you would see that there are numerous snails that are endangered species, clams that are endangered species. 
there are minnows that are endangered species. And there's been cases where that um, in California that they would not allow farmers access to some water because they needed that water to preserve that endangered species. That put some farms and some gins and some merchants out of business. But under that law, that's allowable. Don, where did it go wrong? So you, when you introduced the idea of the Endangered Species Act, the example you gave was maybe a road construction project. And then that has been used and applied to the pesticide registration process. So pesticide registration contrasted with road construction. I mean, they were not even in the same ballpark. Where did we zig when we should have zagged from the time of the writing of the Endangered Species Act until we're using this to feed into the information to label a pesticide? Yeah, I I visited with uh, one of the congressmen that was was actually uh, on the Hill whenever they passed the Endangered Species Act, and he said this... He said, the way they're going about it is not what we were sold on and voted for back then. In reality, they made that authority uh, supersede all of these other statutes that were out there. And it kind of undermined the FIFRA statute that put EPA uh, as the sole person over registration of pesticides. And because EPA has so many scientists, such great depths of scientific information, EPA can actually perform that whole consultation process within their risk assessment, and they've been doing it for years. But if an exclusion would have been put in there, that would have made it clear that ESA covers all of these other things but does not supersede EPA's authority under FIFRA, uh, you wouldn't have had that. But because that you do have those two, those two statutes have some very basic disagreements. And that's what's made it a conflict, is that you almost can't comply with both of them at the same time. The language is so different in what it demands that you almost can't comply with both of them at the same time. I think at a high level it's important to kind of define what those major differences are. For instance, the in FIFRA, you have some very clear language on that EPA has to use uh, this data and that EPA has a timeline that they have to adhere to to get these products done. And then they have every 15 years, they've got to review those products and ensure all of that's done that they have to use the best available science in the whole process. And when you you say review data, you mean data that the potential environmental impact of that product as well as the benefits of that product. They actually, whenever they do their risk assessments, they have to do literature searches and look back through the literature to make sure that they're getting the, the best, information that's out there on these anything from products to uh, habitats or ecosystems whatever that they're using that best available data that's on the use of the products whatever and fish and wildlife services is is more of protect the species and 
use data if it's available, but then complete what's needed with your biological opinion. EPA, one of the critical things is EPA has, our FIFRA has a risk benefits component to where that you have to, when you get down to the ecological component, you have to look at what's the benefits of a product versus the risk or the the damage that may be incurred. And if you're talking on uh, ESA, there is no risk benefit. They don't have to consider that. So you can see where the conflict comes in is that EPA can feel that there's a need to register something under a risk benefits analysis, and Fish and Wildlife would say, um, we don't, we're not bound to a risk benefit, so no. And, and so those statutes have several languages and then the bottom line comes down to Fish and Wildlife doesn't have a deadline. I've heard Fish and Wildlife say before, you know, that we don't have the staff and we don't have the mandate to keep up with what EPA keeps up with. And that shows you some of just some basic components of those two statutes that are in total conflict with each other. Don, can you give us an example for just say a, a grower? here in Washington County, of how this could impact them in the short term. If you looked at some of the recent registrations, let's take, I'm not sponsoring any product for sure, but I'm going to use one as an example. So if you take Enlist, whenever Enlist first got its uh, rollout for its last registration, there was a whole lot of counties, over 200-something counties, that the use of Enlist was prohibited. And that's, na- that's nationwide. Yes. And most of those counties, the, that prohibition was around one insect, the American burrowing beetle. Now, since then, enough data was compiled and put in to show them that about 130 of those counties were, were not habitat for American burrowing beetle. So those were granted registration but those counties that had those pests or those uh, endangered species in it they just can't use the product period if they're growing a field in that county it's illegal to use that product and you'll see that there's there's others that are coming out that in some cases it is going to be just a point blank you can't use the product in in these counties in some cases, it may be that you have bigger buffers. So I think it's going to be uh, over the next year or two, we're going to see some major changes. Some of the mitigations that are being talked about now on what can we do to not just blanketly cut a county out. There's talk about trying to identify practices that producers are already doing that actually are beneficial to these endangered species and that most likely are, are eliminating any risk to them by filtering the, the waters and such to where there's not any jeopardy to the endangered species. And so there's, there's this concept that there may be a pick list. You may get a product registered and you may have to go on that label and pick certain practices that you're going to do that makes it legal for you to use that product. So in the example that you gave of Enlist, a new label for a 
old active ingredient. Yep. 2,4-D's the first synthetic herbicide we had, but Enlist label has been around, what, five years, six yeah. years, however many years now. So very new label for that product. So that could just be a kind of a harbinger of things to come as products are re-registered or new products are registered. So Yeah, and so you know, there's two critical things that, that, are, that everybody needs to sort of re- pay attention to on that label. One is that they had a concern about runoff water and endangered species. So there is a restriction on there that because of runoff, you're, you're automatically at a minus six, and you have to look on this list and pick some different practices that give you points to build back to zero, and then you're legal to use the product. The other thing is that the bulletin's live too, and there's a small section in there that says endangered species. Whenever you look at, read the text that's in there, it says uh, if you live in an area that may have endangered species, you're required to go to Bulletin's Life 2 for further instructions. All right, so tell people what that is, the Bulletin's so Live So Bulletin's two. Life 2 is a, a new website venue that EPA has put together that EPA has made that an extension of the label. So in other words, it is a component of the label. It is a legal component of the label. Now, whenever you go to Bulletin's Life 2, it'll, it'll pull up this map, and you can click on the map where your farm is, and then you can give a date that you're going to make an application and a product that you're planning to make on that date and submit that, it will pull up a PDF then and tell you if there are any additional restrictions that are pertaining directly to you because you live that close to an endangered species. And that PDF may have some additional instructions that you have to do to comply with the label. It's important that people print that off and to keep it in their records because that is now a legal part of their label to be able to use that product. And in the name it says live, and it is live and subject it is live, to change. And it's subject to change. And that and whatever you print off is only good for, I think it's a three-month window that they give that provision for that to be good for a three-month window. And if it does not give you any additional instructions, I'm encouraging all producers print that out too and attach it to that label so that you've got the proof that shows you went to the site and you had no additional restrictions or to comply with. And Tom, don't do it on your iPhone because it's incredibly clunky and it will not do it on well, your iPhone. Well, I was going to say, so they really, they've updated all those information related to each of the endangered species within each region, county, state, or whatever that is. Is that realistic? Well, remember, it's Bulletin's Live. So they have updated a bunch of it. That doesn't mean it's not continually being updated. So it's going to grow more and more uh, as they get further into these mitigations around endangered species. So it'll become even more clunky. And no one had the foresight to give it a name that was remotely <laughs> related to what it actually showed. <laughs> Getting back to your original question, Jason, about how it impacts a grower in Washington County, 
And that's one of the things that I've really thought about around this because there's a lot of talk about getting actual use patterns and and a lot of that stuff. And one of the really nice things about a lot of the insecticides that we use now is they have some flexibility to them. So you start talking about use patterns, you're going to start looking at averages, which means that some people spray less and some people spray more. And we talked earlier about Don informing us about invasive species. You know, we had the sugarcane aphid come in several years ago, and there was really nothing in grain sorghum labeled to control sugarcane aphid. What if we have something like that come in for soybeans or cotton? It can be absolutely devastating to that crop. And we've got all these insecticide products restricted down so much that there's just not a lot of options available to adjust what we do. So, I mean, that's my biggest worry about putting a lot of these restrictions on it taking away that flexibility to use products and rotate products from a resistance management standpoint. We need more tools in the toolbox, and I hate to use the term tools, but, I mean, we need more insecticides to manage the pests that we're dealing with in the South, not less and not more restrictions on them. Of course. And, you know, with Don sitting here, you talk about cotton and herbicides even my whole life. We haven't had enough cotton herbicides. We just haven't. The majority of the ones that we have, with the exception of, you know, dicamba and 2,4-D and their respective technologies, many, many of those are 40 to 70 years old. It's almost a little counterintuitive. that, Like from a tarnished plant bug standpoint in cotton, if we had 10 really good products, we would spray less than we do now because we have – 10 really good products and we could rotate them and protect them. And, but I mean, now we spray a lot because we're only getting 50 or 60% control with any one product. So we end up having to spray more. You get 50 of 50 of 50 and you still haven't killed them all. Right. You lose a product and you're getting 30. So it's, it just burns up the, all the products even more rapidly. Yep. That's right. I told EPA that number one, if you want to talk about mitigations of, of what can be done on the farm that would protect or maybe even enhance endangered species, I said, if, you, if you're wanting to talk about how you identify those things to put on the label, you need to be sitting down with producers because that's the most creative group that you're going to find. And if, if you come up with a problem, you take it to a group of producers they can they can think of all kinds of ways to approach it. This is one that is a call for our producers. And so many so many uh, these agencies, they say, well, we don't want to talk about the specific location of the species because, you know, people might go out and do something to the species and all. I see it totally the other way. We got the most fantastic group of guys, gals across this country that can grow stuff. And we got some species that need some help growing. And I think this is an opportunity for agriculture to really stand out and shine where that we can get the information that 
that what can we do that can enhance these species? And once we get them enhanced, they'll be delisted. And these restrictions won't be in place. But I think this is an opportunity for agriculture to make some statements that would be very powerful. Yeah, you know the old saying that growers are the best stewards of the land, farmers are the best stewards of the land. Absolutely. I have no doubt that every farmer, if they found out they had an endangered species on their land, whether it be a plant, animal, whatever, they're going to do everything they can to protect it. I mean, that's just the nature of what farmers yeah. do. They take pride in some of those things of of their story of stewardship. So, you know, this is where, this farm here is where this species was grown and rebounded. Yep. And, and there's a lot that we can do in that area. We thank the both of you for getting together to talk about this. I think this is a really, really, really important topic, and it's obviously something that will just become more important moving into the future. So it's good to have Don Parker around and an advocate for farming and for cotton. And Jeff, your knowledge and expertise in those areas is definitely important for those of us that are scientists as well. That was a pretty long pause there. (laughs) He was trying to describe how all the things that you've done, because Jeff's done a tremendous amount in this area already. It's it's all all 100% because of Don. And Don, man. His teamwork. That's sometimes sometimes it's good when people don't know who you are. <laughs> you know, you're, what you're doing your work in the background. and But, man, if y'all don't know Don, he does a tremendous amount of work. And like I said on the lead-in, it reaches well beyond the cotton industry. Obviously, his first love and his uh, charge is in cotton. But the things that he does reach well beyond that. And, man, we certainly appreciate it. But I couldn't do it if there wasn't that teamwork effort in the ag community. And that's what makes it a pleasure. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension. 